Birds and Bees Part 1. Brown Birds When I was a child, living in the wild, tangled beauty of Indira, my world was full of wings. Tiny, jeweled hummingbirds, the little gray and yellow reinitas like Caribbean sparrows filling the bushes, the crisp silhouettes of guaraguaos, red-tailed hawks, sun making their wings glow amber. The year I was eleven, my father's friend and colleague Robert MacArthur, an evolutionary biologist who specialized in birds, came to visit. I remember standing stock still under the Australian pine as he pointed out tiny vireos in the shifting shade. We became passionate bird watchers, my mother following up on the enthusiasm of the moment with bird books and binoculars. Soon my brother and I learned to stalk the woods, identifying bullfinches and tanagers, hoping for a glimpse of a lizard cuckoo with its sinuous neck and dramatic black-and-white tail feathers, or the tiny round ball of green fluff known as a medio peso. And once, at night, we came on a whole family of little ground owls, mucaros, sitting on a branch, blinking. The field guides were difficult to decode, even with full-color plates. There were all the different shapes of tails, wings, and beaks, the minute differences between common locals and the rare visitor blown in from Africa or Mexico, and something I didn't realize until decades later. Ornithologists are human beings doing their work in societies riddled with bias and preconception, to which science has never been immune. Human constructions of gender and other social relations made to enforce domination get imposed onto other species as if they were the natural order of things, until someone bends down to look and realizes that the raging bull elephants are actually matriarchs defending their young, that the so-called law of the jungle is characterized more by collaboration than conquest, that non-humans aren't dumb beasts, but make language and tools and mourning rituals of their own. So one of the problems with the field guides we poured over was their focus on the males of the species. Of course, the bright coloring of male birds makes them easier to identify, and many of the female birds are brown. But a feminist ornithology might have taught me to pay attention to brown birds, to the slight rosy blush on the breast of this one, the dark ring around the other one's eye, not to discard them as too boring and hard to understand. It might have spared me the mockery of my family when sometime in that last year in Puerto Rico I came excitedly home claiming to have seen a rare Cuban solitaire. Because it was one of the few brown birds in the book with its own name and a glossy color plate, and because no one had taught me how to distinguish the female tanager from the female thrush or the female thrasher, I was certain that I had found a rarity, a foreign male, not a local female. My parents made fun of me, seeing as a bid for special attention, and instead of helping me explore the problems of identification of plain brown birds, made my claim into a cruel standing joke about pretentiousness. It's ironic that my mother in particular should have responded that way. Perhaps a few years later, when a Puerto Rican working-class feminist was no longer such a rare species, and time and geography changed her from a solitaire to one in the immense collective flock of the women's movement, she might have said something different. One of her best-loved poems, City Pigeons, proudly proclaims her allegiance to the common. 
Though she loved to wear bright colors, she never aspired to fancy social plumage and despised elitism of every kind. Then, instead of mockery, instead of communicating to me that for a little Puerto Rican girl to think she'd seen something rare was pretentious, we could have sat down together and studied the subtle markings of female birds, common and brown, like us. Part 2. Bees When I was twenty, I spent several weeks of my poetic translation tutorial wrestling a Neruda poem into English, a word at a time. Abejas dos begins, There is a cemetery of bees, and it ends, there they arrive, one by one, a million with another million. All the bees arrive to die, until the earth is covered in great yellow mountains. I will never forget their fragrance. In 1974, thinking about mountains of dead bees in their millions was a metaphor, devoid of horror. In Neruda's imagination, they were dying of sweetness, not neonicotinoids. Gigantic corporations didn't call them thieves for gathering their yellow grains of genetic code in violation of trade monopolies and scattering them across property lines in violation of privatization. Their fragrant expiring didn't signal the fracture of the natural world, famines, crop failures, barren gardens. Last summer, the squashes in my garden bloomed but never made fruit. I saw only one large bumblebee all season, in spite of all the offerings we planted, and their absence filled me with fear. My brother Ricardo has pointed out to me that most of the online campaigns to save the bees focus on the work they do for us, as if we were the privileged rich and they were an exploited immigrant nation, toiling in our fields to fertilize the dinner table, worthy of saving only so that we can eat. But the bees are their own golden beings, orbiting their flowering planet. I remember them traveling the paths of the air, spiraling in slow grace through the pollen-dusted petals of nasturtiums, hibiscus, gladioli, or in bullet-fast, furious beeline, spending their rough, bright bodies in defense of the hive. How the intricate calligraphy of their dancing unfurled across the morning like a scroll, how they were not there for us, but with us. How they spread fertility to orchards, wildflowers, and inedible shrubs without regard for our hungers. Bees are a shining strand in the web of ecology whose unraveling dooms us. They are sovereign nations facing extinction, and we have been here before. We must be their underground railroad, their sanctuary movement, their solidarity committee, blocking the roads that lead to their massacre, not because they could make the squash blossoms bear fruit, though that is part of their beauty, but because they exist and, like us, are in peril for their lives. <laughs>